Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Some kids never stand a chance. On March 5th, 1939, a young boy was born who would struggle throughout his entire childhood and into his teen years. A boy who, before even reaching adulthood, would take the lives of three children and an adult when given the opportunity to walk free once more. A man who would be dubbed the serial killer they couldn't cure. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Peter Woodcock, also known as David Michael Kruger, was born on March 5, 1939 to a teenaged mother in Petersboro, Ontario, who, after a month, gave him up for adoption. Because he so quickly went from breastfeeding to bottle feeding, Peter had consistent feeding issues, cried constantly, and hopped from foster home to foster home, unable to bond with any of his foster parents, at least one of which physically abused him. By the time he was one years old, he was fearful of anyone approaching him and would speak in what was described as a, quote, strange whining animal noise instead of normal babbling and simple word formation. When he was three, he was finally placed in a more permanent situation when he moved in with Frank and Susan Maynard. Unfortunately, stability doesn't always mean loving. 
Susan was described as a forceful woman who became attached to Peter, who was still experiencing the issues he had when he was a baby. Eventually, by the time he was entering kindergarten, Peter finally stopped screaming when approached, but remained maladjusted enough that he now became the target of schoolyard bullies. He began wandering around his neighborhood in an effort to get away from the other children and was once found cowering in the bushes. Susan, whom Peter had become exceptionally close to, bordering on inappropriate, began taking Peter to the hospital for sick children on a pretty consistent basis, where he received numerous treatments to try and fix his issues. He was sent to private school where he yet again experienced issues with his peers. And by the time he was 11, all of it started to pile up, accumulating in aggression and anger issues. He began experiencing violent fantasies and on one occasion told a social worker that he wished a bomb would fall down and kill all of the children in the area where they were taking their walk. He was then moved to a school for emotionally disturbed children where, at the age of 13, he began having sexual relations with fellow female students. At 15, he was discharged from that school and went back to his original private school where he, once again, failed to connect with children his own age. When that didn't work, he went back to his public school, where the neighborhood kids resumed the bullying from his early childhood and was returned to a private school just six weeks later. Peter couldn't catch a break, and despite his academic excelling, his mental instability seemed to spiral with each setback from his teen years. The more bullying and isolation he experienced, the more he seemed to wander. Eventually, his long walks and bike rides throughout the Toronto area became much more than just a solitary time to reflect. He began grabbing and molesting young children who he encountered on his trips, while leading a fantasy gang of 500 invisible boys he called the Winchester Heights Gang. His parents knew about his imaginary gang and knew that he was out at all hours and to unknown places, but they were unaware that his wanderings had taken a violent turn. On September 15, 1956, at just 17 years old, Peter was riding his bike around the grounds of the Exhibition Place, an entertainment center in Toronto, when he spotted seven-year-old Wayne Millette. He lured the boy away to sexually assault him, but for whatever reason, whether intentional or by accident, he strangled the young boy until he took his last breath. His body was found the next day with pennies ritualistically scattered nearby and wearing a British schoolboy uniform and looked as though he had been undressed and dressed after his murder. His face had been pushed into the dirt and on his calf and buttock were distinct bite marks. Despite the signs that he had been assaulted, there was no evidence of rape. Next to the boy's body was a pile of feces, presumably from the killer. Now, pretty quickly, the Toronto police arrested and interrogated someone in connection to Wayne's death. The boy confessed after severe questioning and, despite eyewitnesses providing him an alibi, was found guilty and sentenced to a youth detention. Unfortunately, it wasn't Peter Woodcock. Instead, 14-year-old Ron Moffat sat behind bars for a crime he had no clue about, having confessed under police pressure. On October 6th, 1956, while riding through Cabbage Town, Peter picked up a nine-year-old boy named Gary Morris and drove him to Cherry Beach, where he was strangled and beaten with such force that his cause of death was a ruptured liver. His body was found with a bite mark on his throat, 
paper clips scattered around him, and showing signs that he had been undressed and dressed again by his killer. It was clear that there was a serial killer active in Toronto and that Ron Moffat couldn't be responsible for the crime from behind bars. Unfortunately, it would take a little bit more to earn the boy his release. On January 19th, 1957, Peter picked up four-year-old Carol Voice and biked her to a viaduct where he choked her into unconsciousness, molested her, and then raped her with a tree branch, an act that ultimately caused her death. Witnesses saw a teen biking near Carol's body, and with an accurate sketch that ran in the Toronto Star and police force cooperation and note sharing, Peter Woodcock was identified and arrested just two days later and confessed to all three murders. At the time of his arrest, he told police, quote, My fear was that my mother would find out. Mother was my biggest fear. I didn't know if police would let her at me. He was tried for Carol's murder and, after a three-day trial in April of 1957, was found not guilty by reason of insanity and sentenced to a maximum security mental health center. He was called to testify at Ron Moffat's trial. His wrongful murder charge was stayed and he was finally set free. Now, Peter may have been safely tucked away in a maximum security center, but his story and murders didn't end with Carol. While imprisoned, Peter was diagnosed as a psychopath and underwent a number of experimental treatments, including LSD treatments and dyads, a personality-breaking therapy where inmates challenge each other's belief, a form of treatment tested on Ted Kaczynski while at Harvard. He was given a number of personality-breaking drugs and therapies, but no matter how hard they tried, he never seemed to respond. He kept up his sexual deviances with other patients, telling them he had contact with a mythical group and in order to be initiated, they needed to perform oral sex on him, exploited his fellow inmates for gifts and cigarettes, and formed a new imaginary gang called the Brotherhood. He was eventually transferred to a less restrictive center where they did things like allow him to go to museums and take him to see movies like Silence of the Lambs. It was also here that he met a man named Bruce Hamill, a convicted killer from Ottawa who had been released from the hospital and was working as a security guard at the courthouse. He had stabbed a 58-year-old school caretaker back in 1997 because he made his mother angry. Peter, who at this point was going by the name David Michael Kruger, convinced Bruce, whom he had begun a sexual relationship with, that the alien brotherhood called the Praetorian Guard would reward him with a top security job in the parliament building, give him $50,000, a house, and cure him of his mental illness if he just helped Peter kill another inmate named Dennis Kerr. On July 13, 1991, Bruce purchased a plumber's wrench, hatchet, knives, and a sleeping bag and signed Peter out on his very first unsupervised weekend pass. They arranged to meet Dennis in the woods near the hospital, where Peter beat him over the head with the wrench until he was unconscious, after which Bruce began to hack at him with the hatchet and mutilate his body with the knives. When they finished, they stripped down naked and, covered in his blood, sodomized his nearly decapitated corpse. Peter then got up, walked the two miles to the police station, and turned himself in. Peter Woodcock was then sent back to the Maximum Security Center where he spent the next 34 years of his life in custody until his death on his 71st birthday in 2010. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on March 6th. 
Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.